And so unlike Ernest, you know, it really got me curious, like, what is this about? Like, why, why is he writing about this? The title, the opening line of the essay is, we are told we are born with a will to live and an almost equal will to die. It got me really thinking. What was he talking about? And then I remember that uh, these essays in the Living the Science of Mind book have come from the home study course. And the home study course is what uh, individuals had in the beginning of Science of Mind. We didn't have centers. We didn't have places where you could go take foundations and roots and all the wonderful classes we teach. You would get the home study course, and it would get mailed to you. You would read it. You would answer the questions. You would send it back to home office, and they would send you the next one. And so I went, and I researched, where in the heck did that come from, the will to live? And it's in the home study courses. Our Science of Mind archives have reprinted the home study courses so you can get them. It's in Lesson 23. And it starts out with this letter from Ernest Holmes. My dear friend, we hope you will pay particular attention to the article, The Will to Live. Since it is now known that those without the will to live unconsciously begin to destroy themselves. Of course, they cannot destroy the spirit or the soul or the mind, but the mind can destroy the body when the will to live is absent. We ought then to find plenty of reasons why we love life and why we can live it enthusiastically. Everyone should find some creative work to do because it is not enough just to know that everything is all right. We must do something about it. Life is meant to be lived, and it ought to be lived in joy and happiness and with a deep sense of peace, which arises from a conviction of security. And he goes on from there. But after reading that letter and reading the essay, it made much more sense to me what it was that he was getting at with this will to live. Those without the will to live unconsciously destroy themselves. Well, that was an interesting thought right there. I mean, it starts out with that. What does he mean by that? You know, we unconsciously destroy ourselves. I mean, how can we destroy ourselves really, right? And as he said, we can't really put out the light completely, but we sure can snuff it. We sure can turn it down way low. Because that inner light, that essence of who we are, we can't put it out. Even in death, it doesn't go out. Right? But we can sure muffle it. We can sure muffle it. And how do we do that? You know, we do that by our thinking, by our actions, by the way that we live in the world. You know, if we have a grief, if we have a loss, and we hang on to that, and we wallow in it, and we think about it, and we're sad, we're not living fully. We're not living fully. Right? If we have a, a sickness, you know, if we have a sickness and we've been, some doctor has told us we're terminal, right? And we believe them. And we believe them, right? It's uncurable and we believe them. Then we're living in that cycle of putting out our light, of dimming our light, of shining less. You know, if we're depressed, and many of us in this world suffer from depression, and it's a real thing. It's a real thing, especially around the holidays. You said that, you know. So holidays for everybody isn't joyful, for some people, it's very painful, right? So if we're in that depression, we're not living our full light. You know, in our addictions, we're not living our full light. You know, I'm going to tell a little story about myself, and I'm going to reveal a little bit more about myself than I normally do. But I think it's really important for this talk today. I am... Um, 
from the time I was very little, I've shared with you before, I was a worry ward. I was the one that was called the worry ward of the family. I was the little uh, nervous one, a bit my nails, still do. Um, you know, and I just, I, I, life frightened me. Life frightened me. I wasn't, I wasn't fully equipped. I felt like I got to this planet and no one gave me the directions, right? Even as a little child, even as a little child. And, and that compounded. You know, my parents had multiple children. Right after me, my mother had a very difficult uh, miscarriage where she almost died, and I was only two or three years old. I don't really remember it, but I know that impacted me, that sense of death and dying. You know, I had relatives that died when I was young. Everything scared me. I was raised in a religion that was hell and damnation, and I was afraid of burning in hell. That scared the bejeebies out of me, you know? And uh, it just went on and on from there. And then um, I had losses and we had things happen in the family like we all do, but I internalized it, you know. And what I ended up doing is I ended up turning to drugs and alcohol. You know, and many of you know that I've been sober for many, many years now, but I was a teenage alcoholic. I was a teenage drug addict and that's what I did. And I didn't get clean and sober until I was 27 years old. So I moved to Los Angeles. I was a theater major. I loved to do drama. And I moved to LA to pursue an acting career. And I was studying, and I was studying with some of the big people up there in LA at the time. And um, it came to the day when I was to do a scene, or I was doing a scene, and the woman in the play that I was playing was going to commit suicide. And I said to my acting teacher at the time, I said, I so cannot relate to that. I have never, I would never commit suicide. I don't know. I mean, I just, I have nothing to draw on. You know, it was method acting, right, back in those days. And I have nothing to draw on. And he said, well, what would you do if you wanted to check out? And I said, well, I'd get loaded. Right? I mean, isn't that what everybody does? Well, apparently not. Apparently not. He had been at that time, he had been a sober member of uh, a recovery program for many years, and he caught on to the fact that I might have a problem. And he sent me to do research for another part I was playing of a lady who was coming out of a rehab. And it was by me going to do research for that project that I came to learn that I had a problem, and I've been sober ever since, and I'm very, very grateful for that. And it is through that discovery that I ended up in religious science. But the important part here is the denial that I had that I'm slowly killing myself. That I was slowly killing myself. I would have told you I was just partying. I was just having a good old time. Right? We're in complete denial sometimes of those actions that we're taking that are snuffing out our light, that are keeping us pressed down. As we come, you know, uh, to understand when we come into um, this teaching, when we come into a recovery program, we go into therapy, we go somewhere where we begin to heal, we begin to see. We begin to see, and that is the thrust of religious science, to uncover those thought patterns that are keeping us down. My thought pattern was that I was worthless, that I was no good, that I had nothing to offer, that I was broken. I believed I was broken, right? And I came to believe that we're not through coming into this teaching. The mind can destroy the body when the will to live is absent. That's what Ernest says, right? And Ernest Holmes, he's talking about this new psychology, psychosomatic psychology, which at that time was new. Now, we kind of talk about it all the time, right? Now we know the body-mind correlation. We know the body-mind connection. Reverend Megan's teaching body-mind January 17th. 
So if you're curious about what's going in your body and what thoughts that you have that are producing what it is that you're not wanting or what you are wanting, come learn more about the body-mind connection. It's much more known today than it was in earnest times. It was a brand new psychology. Carl Jung and some of those early um, psychologists were just discovering it. And uh, the definition is, psychosomatics is relating to, concerned with, or involving both mind and body, the psychosomatic nature of man. Relating to, involving, or concerned with bodily symptoms caused by mental and emotional disturbances. Right? So our body-mind. In the home study course that I read you, the letter from Ernest Holmes, in that same section with the will to live, he has a psychosomatic and an infant, he has a whole article on that. It's fascinating. What we pick up in infancy, you know, he talks about the need of a child to be held, to know that it's love. You know, the child, you know, he talks about a parent really wanting to have a child, you know, to have a child. I mean, those directions that we didn't get, right? <laughs> those directions we didn't get, like having a kid is 24-7. There's no time off. These thoughts and feelings can be traced back to our life experiences. You know, it's the very thing that religious science practitioners are trained to help you with. It's the very thing that Ernest Holmes was all about and our teaching is all about. Uncovering, discovering, and discarding. We've got two beautiful women who are in practitioner training right now. I can't wait for them to be licensed. We've got another year to go, year and a half. But, you know, we learn what are those thoughts underneath that are keeping me, that are keeping me in the place that I don't want to be. You know, they say, if you want to know what you're thinking, look what's showing up in your life. If stuff's showing up in your life that you don't want, I encourage you to go back and look at the thought that you're holding that could be creating that. Right? We uncover, discover, and discard. You know, I didn't know that I didn't have any self-worth. I didn't know that I thought very little of myself. I didn't know any of that. I was in complete denial of that. Today, the body-mind connection is recognized and accepted worldwide. It really is. There's a widespread knowledge that thoughts can heal and that thoughts can harm. The medical profession recognizes it, books written all about it. I picked up this book, and a little coinkydink, you know, and we know that there's no coincidences, right? Coincidences are God's way of staying anonymous, right? I was talking to Reverend Megan in meditation the other day, and I'm like, I found this great book. I, you know, I go to the bookstore during the day sometimes, and I look around at our bookstore, and we got some good books in there. And I picked up this book on Frederick Bales, by Frederick Bales, called The Hidden Power of Human Problems. And I'm telling Reverend Megan about how great this book is, and she says, I'm reading that book too. And in fact, I'm going to teach a class on that book. You know, so the one mind, it's an amazing thing. But this Frederick Bales, he was the assistant dean of the School of, uh, of the Science of Mind Institute with Ernest Holmes. He was a man who uncovered and discovered those thoughts that create illness in us. He talks about the seven parent thoughts, which is very fascinating. Very, for those of you in practitioner studying or those of you that are really wanting to understand this parent thought, he says there's seven parent thoughts that create what he calls children. And the children thoughts would be, for instance, the alcoholism. Alcoholism is a child thought of the parent thought not good enough not good enough, right? So we only have these seven parent thoughts that are creating these little children. And when we heal the children, we haven't really got to the root and the cause of what's going on. We've just healed the children. 
He tells a story of a man in, oh, what is the guy's name? Mr. Bludgeon, I think he calls him. He's come, he comes in for him for an ulcer, and he comes to see a Frederick, and Frederick also had a radio show. And Mr. Bludgeon was angry. He sat facing me and said, I've just come from the doctors. He says, I have a gastric ulcer. I've heard you say on the air that illness stems from the thought life. And I'll tell you, I never once thought of having an ulcer. Why in the world do I have it, right? Why in the world do I have it? And uh, Bales goes on to explain to him that it's not that you sat and thought, oh, I want to have this disease, or I'm fearful of that disease. That's not what brings it on to us. But it's that parent thought that attracts it to us. And what he discovered with Mr. Bludgeon is that the parent thought that he went through life with, he was a very assertive businessman, he was very short to make decisions, he knew himself, he went through life, you know, very quickly. He knew him by name when he came to visit him because he was a prominent uh, businessman. But his parent thought was one of irritation. Life irritated him. People irritated him. They weren't fast enough, they weren't quick enough. They weren't like him. And so he went through life with this entire idea of irritation. Turned inward, created an ulcer. Right? And so what Frederick Bales had him do is he had him practice thoughts of love. Have him practice thoughts of acceptance. And the guy thought he was nuts. He said, how in the world is that going to work? He says, okay, let me think of a place where do you feel at peace. And he had a beautiful ocean view. He says, when I come home from work at night, I sit on my deck and I look out at the ocean and I feel peace. And he said, let's start there. And so he would start by sitting on his deck and seeing peace, feeling peace, allowing it to move through his body. And as they worked together, he added more things and he added more things. At what point, uh, Mr. Bludgeon's wife called and said, what did you do with my husband? Right? Because he had become a peaceful soul. He was no longer irritated. The women at work couldn't believe it. He was a joy. He was happy to be around. And of course, his ulcer was healed. And he never had that again, you know. And that's the amazing thing about religious science, the amazing thing about science of mind that I really can't emphasize enough. And we've talked about this, that we don't share enough our victories, our testimonies, our demonstrations. You know, we were having you put them on the bulletin board back there, demonstrations that you had, wanting to find another way that we can share with each of you the victories we have. We have people right here in this church that have healed for themselves from cancer. We have people right here in this church that have had financial turnarounds and have gone from having no money to being very affluent. We have people right here that have healed themselves from grief and loss. All sorts of things. All sorts of things. This stuff works. This stuff works, you know, and they were doing it back in the early 1900s. You know, just as we do it today. Frederick Bell said, he says, the science of mind philosophy is not a few psychological tricks. It is a life to be lived. It is a life to be lived. So if you find yourself stuck in any place in your life, take some time to do your own prayer work, to get together with a practitioner, to, to, to study, to find a book in the bookstore that falls off the shelf to you. Um, you know, you, and you may say, well, Reverend Debbie, my life's pretty good. You know, my relationship's good, my finances are good. Okay, yeah, I probably have 50 extra pounds that I don't want, right? Well, that's the place to work. 
We all have different areas in our life, and some may be going really great, but others may be not so good, right? So it's not like the whole thing, but these sections, health, wealth, relationships, the big ones for people. You know, career is the other one. So the last thing that Ernest says in that, or one of the things he says anyway, is life is meant to be lived, and it ought to be lived in joy and happiness and with a deep sense of peace, which arises from a conviction of security, which arises from a conviction of security. It's one of my favorite quotes. I love this uh, Howard Thurman quote. Don't ask what the world needs. Ask yourself what makes you come alive and go do that. Because the world need, well, because what the world needs is people who have come alive, right? So what makes you come alive? What brings you joy? Alan Cohen, he's written several books, but one of them is Joy is My Compass. Joy is My Compass. And in that book, he starts it out by talking about a little five-year-old friend of his who he calls his guru. Her name is Shauna, I think. And she, uh, she came to live with him. Her mother came to live with him when he was needing some support. And, the, and so he had this little five-year-old, he says, with big brown eyes. And, and he would sit, and he was reading her bedtime story one night. And she sa- asked him what he was going to do tomorrow. And he says, well, when I get up, I'll probably um, do my meditation. And then she said, well, then what? He says, well, I'll probably do have breakfast. Well, then what will you do? Well, I'll have, do my yoga, maybe, he said. And, and after that, he says, well, I'll probably take a shower. And she wanted to know what he was going to do after that. And she said, well, maybe I'll go to the beach. But then he decided he'd turn the tables on her and say, what are you going to do tomorrow? And she said, well, I'm going to play. I play from the minute I wake up in the morning till when I go to bed at night. What a silly question, <laughs> right? And he said how that struck him. Here he'd been doing all this therapy and all this work to figure out how to have this joyful life, and here was this five-year-old that said, play, play, right? He had a unity minister friend, Bob, and he went and asked Reverend Bob. He said, Reverend Bob, what do you do when you have a big decision to make? I mean, how do you know what to do? And Reverend Bob said to him, he said, well, joy is my compass. I sit and I think about the decisions and what one brings me joy. What one makes me feel expansive as opposed to contractive? If it makes you feel contractive, it's probably not for you. If it makes you feel expansive, if it brings you joy, if you say, oh, yes, I can do that, that's the one to do. That's the one to do, even if it doesn't make sense. Follow the trail of joy. Joy is my compass. Joy is my compass. You know, and... uh, Life is meant to be lived and it ought to be lived in joy and happiness with a deep sense of peace which arises from a conviction of security. So where do we get this conviction of security, right? And that's where we do our faith, right? That conviction of security comes from the belief that there is a power greater than yourself that's got your back, that's got you, right? In, through, and as you, right? that we can depend on this power 100%. That there's no place that we can go that God is not, that spirit is not. You know, and it takes practice. It takes practice to get there. Those of you that have been around here a while, and we have some who've been here, you know, for 50 years, they're going to tell you 100% that their power is real because they've had it experienced it in their life. If you're just starting out, you may not have that conviction. But if you keep doing what you're doing now, if you keep trying, if you keep practicing, like how do you get to Carnegie Hall, right? Practice, practice, practice. It's the same thing. How do we get to this sense of conviction 
that spirit's got me, that I'm going to be okay no matter what, right? If the lava flows all over the island, you're going to be okay, right? If your husband leaves you, you're going to be okay. If a child has sickness, God forbid, you're going to be okay. You're going to feel pain and you're going to feel sorrow. If you lose everything in a fire, you're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. That sense of conviction that spirits got us, that spirits got us. You know, that's my prayer for you as we move out into this holiday season, that you walk with spirit, that you know wherever you go, family, not with family, if you're traveling, if you're staying here, wherever you're going, whatever you're doing, however you're celebrating, please know that you're not alone. Please know that you're not alone. God bless you. So grateful that you're here today. Namaste. Namaste. So grateful you're here.